0: The year was about A.D. 90. Twenty years earlier, the temple that had stood in Jerusalem had been absolutely leveled. The Roman Emperor Titus, along with his army, came in and absolutely leveled the central spot of worship in Judaism. The Apostle John, at this point in time, is a friend of Jesus. He's one of the only disciples still alive. In fact, many believe he was the only disciple still alive. He finds himself on this little island off the coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. He's living in exile. It's about 24 miles from the shore, and he's there as a prisoner of the empire of Rome. Rome, in 80-90, is ruled by a man by the name of Domitian. Domitian was the very first emperor that required people to worship him as both God and Savior. John refused to bow his knee. Can you imagine standing before an emperor and being required to to bow down and worship him as God? John, this friend of Jesus. John, the the man who cared for Jesus' mother after he was crucified. John, the, the man who leaned up against Jesus during the Last Supper. This John, this John refused to bow his knee. Tradition says that Domitian got a pot of burning oil and dumped it on the apostle John to try to kill him. It sort of backfired on him, though, because the people that were there witnessing this murder, they saw that that it didn't affect John the way that, that they thought it should have, and so they started following Jesus. Domitian thought, since he couldn't kill him, that he'd put John on this island with other criminals. And I wonder in the ancient world what it would have been like to be on a deserted island with a few other prisoners, to be there and to, to look up at the stars. I wonder if it felt like the night would never end, like the sky just kept going and going and going. I wonder if the promise that God made to Abraham, that your descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore, I wonder if, if John walked along the shores and thought about that promise. I wonder if the silence was, was almost deafening, John, this pastor of a series of churches, is taken away from his churches. The empire rules with an iron fist. They have something that's called the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. But it was only peace if you were on the right side of the sword. I wonder if John starts to replay the things that he's seen Jesus do the miracles that Jesus performed, the healings, the raising from the dead the mud on the guy's eyes that makes him miraculously see, the guy who who carries his mat from the place where he lay crippled for years and years. And I wonder if John sits on this isolated island wondering when his miracle's gonna come. 24 miles away from anything that would in any way, shape, or form be seen as redemption or hope. That's where we pick up our story. It's Sunday, And John's doing what you do as a disciple on Sunday morning, going to church. Revelation 1 verse 10 says John was in the Spirit, and he heard a voice. He heard a voice that said, write this down. You wonder if if John scrambled to find some parchment lying around somewhere, and and he began writing the words that Jesus Jesus gave him with with these scarred hands, with this parched soul that we read in the letter of Revelation. It's written to a church that's in the midst of an empire. It's written to a church that, that is barely holding on. It's written to a church that, that's, that, that's seen its pastor be boiled and burned with oil. It's seen people dragged away and stuck on Roman crosses. It's seen things that we couldn't possibly imagine seeing. And this letter, before it's about any events that are going to happen in the future it is about a person who stands above the future. Before it's about a dragon eating a virgin, whatever you take that to mean, it's about a Jesus who stands above it all. It's written to a real group of people. It's written to churches that are in the midst of an empire. It is written to churches that are trying to survive and have influence where they have absolutely no power. It's written to a group of people who are barely, barely, barely holding on. And it's written with the message that the powers that be won't always be the powers. The book of Revelation is what we're going to be studying over the next seven weeks. We're going to be studying the letters to the seven churches, which is what this whole letter is addressed to. Now, there's a little bit of debate around the letter of Revelation. And I've seen two equally damaging or dangerous approaches to Revelation. One is ignorance that the idea is we could absolutely have no idea what this book is talking about, so let's just ignore it, right? Like in Revelation 12, there's this dragon that's trying to eat a virgin. I have no idea what we're supposed to do with that, so let's just put this letter on the shelf. Let's just put it aside and have nothing to do with it. The, the other position is obsession, where, where you become so obsessed with the book of Revelation that you treat it as like a newspaper, and everything that you're reading in the newspaper, you're trying to tie to, to certain events that are happening in the world. And people have been trying to do that for the last couple hundred centuries, and they've missed the mark. And so if that's our approach, we're probably going to miss the mark too. So there's obsession and there's ignorance. And what I'd like to propose to you is maybe there's a different way. Maybe there's a better way to read this book. Maybe there's a way that is actually more true to what this book is intending to do. The word revelation, which is the first word in this letter that John gets from Jesus, in the Greek it's the word apocalypse. And and we give a negative association to that word. But it literally just means unveiling. It's as though the Spirit of God is pulling back the curtain and going, okay, so this is what's on the horizon. But more important than what's on the horizon is who is on the throne. That's what revelation is all about. Revelation is written in a style of literature that's known as apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature means that John is going to use symbols, pictures, and numbers to tell a story that is much deeper and more significant than what we see on the surface. At some points, Revelation almost reads like a graphic comic book. It's pretty interesting because we don't have a whole lot of uh, of this type of literature around today. So it can be difficult to understand what John is talking about. But it's not difficult to understand why Jesus gives John this letter. The reason Jesus gives John this letter to give to the churches is because these churches are getting beat up. The church feels like hope is slipping away. The churches feel like they look around them and, and they go, we, 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 we saw him. He, he was alive. We, we touched him. We, we heard him. Then he was put into the ground and and then he he rose again and he ascended to heaven and 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 this existence that we're in right now does not seem to coincide with that reality. Some of you are saying, Yeah, I get that. Because some of you are asking the question, God, where are you? Like the reality that that Jesus is alive and well doesn't coincide with with the reality that I'm living in. God, what are you doing? God, if you really do rule and reign, then why does my life and and why does this world look the way it looks? I'm glad you asked that. I'm not sure Revelation is going to answer that question, but it's at least going to speak to it. And it's going to speak to people who have that question. So if you have your Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is what Jesus writes through John to the churches, verse one. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything that he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it And take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So two times in this opening stanza of Revelation, we're going to see that there are things that must soon take place. The time is near. And so as we read the book of Revelation, here's just a rule of thumb. If it can fit with what happened Near and soon to what John is writing, we should assume that that is what Jesus meant. Because that's what he says his intention is. Now certainly, some of the things are future things. But some of them fit within the Roman Empire in Domitian's reign. And what's going on in John's world. But make no mistake about it. He expects that we would read it, that we would hear it, and that we would do it. And just so you think that I'm not lying to you, there's a very specific audience that John is writing to. We read about it in verse 4. It says, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. That's Asia Minor. And if you jump down to verse 11, this is what he says. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. It's a network of churches that are in modern day turkey. And it appears that these letters were intended to be taken along with the rest of the letter of revelation and delivered to these churches. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of these churches and return a letter and, and receive a letter and the return address as from Jesus? That's what's happening here. This is no insignificant thing. John wants to say I know that you've had friends who have been crucified. They they tried to boil me alive. I I get it. We've been walking through the fire, quite literally, sometimes. In fact, what John is going to say is that he's in the midst of and he is a partner with them in suffering. It's pressing in. It's the the pressure cooker. It's it's the instant pot of of the first century. Okay? It's pressing in on these churches. It's into this situation that John writes. He wants to give hope. He wants to bring healing. He wants to bring restoration because life real, real easily can feel like it's the pressure cooker. There was a movie that came out a few years ago. It was called Downsizing. I haven't seen it, and by looking at the box office returns, nobody else has either, but I've heard about it. And uh, I read the plot, and it says that there's a group of scientists who find a way to, to shrink people so that their resources can go further, so they can enjoy some of the normal things, right, but, but on an elevated scale where they take on a whole new meaning and a whole new sense of pleasure. And as I thought about that, I was like, that's how 2022 has been for a lot of people that I know. It feels like nothing's gone right, that, that the world around them grew, that fear grew. And and they shrank. Maybe some of you feel that way. You think of the destruction and devastation caused by Hurricane Ian in in Florida and and the millions of lives that have been affected. You you think about even closer to home. You think back to this summer where there was a police officer in Elwood who was shot and killed in a routine traffic stop. You think about the the death of, of Queen Elizabeth, and I know that she was well advanced in years, but you just think to about what she meant to, to the world and, and the stability that she brought in her reign, how she carried herself with grace and dignity, that it's a significant loss. You think about the ongoing costly war between Ukraine and Russia and, and the, the global political ramifications and implications of that. You think about the, the, the crushing effect that inflation has had on every single one of us. You think about these things and, and then we can look at the, the current political landscape. And no matter which side you're on, like when, when you think about the fact that there are leaders in this world that, that have the, the keys to, to, to press a button to, to detonate a nuclear bomb, like that, that's just a scary world to live in. And so, with all this happening, here's what you can do it can make you go, man, God, where in the world are you? It feels like fear has us in the, this pressure cooker. It feels like sadness, it feels like depression. And the churches in the first century, they go, yeah, I get it. I get it. And Jesus says, I've got a word for you. And John says, I've got a word for you. There's a bigger story being told, and here's the story, verse 4. Grace and peace to you from him who was, or who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. In the first chapter alone, Jesus is mentioned by personal name or personal pronoun 32 times. So John says, I've got a word for you. Actually, better than that, I've got a name for you. If you're walking through fire, if, if you're holding on to hope and it feels like hope is a slippery thing, I've got a word for you. His name is Jesus. And here's what John wants to communicate in the, red, in the letter of Revelation. When Jesus is upsized, fear is downsized, and life is supersized. That's what he wants to say. He says, all right, you seven churches around the Mediterranean region, lift up your eyes. Sure, fear wants to downsize you. Hopelessness wants to downsize you. I said upsized. It's probably better to say real-sized, right? This is the Jesus who walks among them. The text says that that he is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. I'll say it again. Before Revelation is ever about a plan, it is about a person, a person who stands above it all. Listen, my conviction is that it's not the size of our problems that are the real issue. Every problem that we have, we measure in relation to how big our God is. It's not actually the problem that's the issue. It's that we've minimized the size of our God. And if we want to walk in abundance, if we want to walk in new life, we've got to see the Jesus that the scriptures describe, that stands above the circumstances that we walk through, the pain that we hold on to, the regrets that we have, the, the I wish I would have but I didn't conversations that we replay in our brain over and over and over. It's not the problem that's the issue. It's the smallness of our God. And what John wants to do in Revelation, it's like putting air into a balloon. He goes, okay, I know that that you got a lot of stuff going on. I know all the difficult situations. What we're suffering. We're in the pressure cooker. I get it. But Jesus is bigger than you could ever possibly imagine. Lift up your eyes. So what I want to do over the next few minutes is lift up our eyes. Because I have this conviction that when Jesus is upsized, fear is downsized and life is supersized. This is the life Jesus has for us. So let me give you a few truths that invite us into this reality that we see in the first section of Revelation. If you're looking for a book that might help you uh, understand the entire letter of Revelation a little bit better, I cannot recommend Reverse Thunder by Eugene Peterson highly enough. This is what he says in the book. Without Jesus as the controlling center, the Bible is merely an encyclopedia of religion with no more plot than a telephone directory. He says Jesus is at the center of it all. The whole story points to him. He's who we're going to be talking about. He's who the letter is written about. So again, John begins verse four, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The first truth that Jesus wants his audience to know is that he reigns above us. Jesus reigns above us. He's going, listen, I know that that Emperor Domitian is requiring you to to worship and and bow the the knee. I know it feels like the Roman Empire is never going to be defeated. It feels like hope is something so slippery that it should never even be pursued. I get it. But he goes, hey, there's a bigger reality. Lift up your eyes and see the truth. Jesus reigns above it all. The scriptures are going to tell us that, that he, he reigns in a way that he's atoned for and he's conquered sin. That he's conquered the grave. That, that he stands above it all in the universe. John's intention in telling you that is so that you would walk and continue to walk in endurance. It, it says in verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. He says, this is why I'm writing to you. Listen, I know, I know what some of you are walking through because you invite me into it, and I'm grateful for that. But I don't know everything. I don't know the phone call you got this week from the doctor about the health scare. I know for some of you, you're going, God, we got to see you move in this job because we're barely hanging on. God, we're praying that this relationship can be restored because we're offering forgiveness, but it doesn't seem like there's any progress being made. And God, the pain is just becoming too much to bear. Listen, I don't know what situation that you bring in through these doors today. But I do know that you can come in and you are free. It's safe to bring them in. You don't have to leave them at the door. I don't know what situation it is that that you're facing, but I do know that there is a Jesus who reigns above, who's powerful, who's loving, who's good. And when we have that view of Jesus in our mind, that this elevated real view of Jesus, that life starts to take on more of an eternal perspective than getting caught up in the weeds of our temporal existence. And so John says to a church in turmoil and a church in suffering, man, he rules. He reigns. Don't forget it when you look at the Domitians of your day. He stands above them all. And then we look at the second truth. He's going to move from what Jesus is doing and how Jesus is powerful to the way that Jesus wields his power and the reason he uses it and how he uses it on our behalf. We read in verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever, amen. Isn't this a beautiful thing? Jesus doesn't just sit on his throne in heaven going, okay, I'm just gonna sit here and you guys bring me all the worship that I deserve. He could do that, but he says, no, I'm gonna use my power in order to advocate for my people. That's what he does. Jesus advocates for us. He reigns above us, and he advocates for us. He's advocating for you. And I just want to remind you that that means that you can have an empowered reality, an empowered today. But you can't be empowered if you're living in fear. So this is the word that that John wants to speak. Jesus rules, Jesus reigns, Jesus loves, Jesus frees, Jesus makes, He transforms people into his image. Jesus reigns above us. Jesus advocates for us. And then he says this in verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands. A lampstand would have been a reference to the temple. The temple had a number of lampstands in it. They had oil in them, and the oil would be lit in order to light up the temple but there was more significance than that all throughout scripture lampstands signify the spirit and the presence of god so jesus is among them as the presence of god and verse 20 it's going to tell us exactly what those lampstands are the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches as if to say the churches, the local churches, the thing that we do not just on Sunday, but the thing that we are, right? The thing that we are. Like when we go out in our community, when, when, when we serve on a four day, or the upcoming four by four serving opportunities, or when we go and we cover all of our school campuses and prayer, as, as we serve our community, as we hold out hope, as we love our city, as we do all of those things, and as we gather in worship like this right now, we host the presence of God. But John goes on to say, he he doesn't just say that we host, it says, and among the lampstands, okay? In the middle of those churches was someone like a son of man. It's a reference to Daniel 7. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. The son of man moves among us. He walks among us. He's above us. He advocates for us. And Jesus walks among us. He walks among us. And this really caught my heart this week. As I was working through this passage, I was struck by the reality that we can trivialize what we do as a community so easily. And we can miss the fact that Jesus walks among us. Think about that for a moment. John wants to tell you what Jesus is like as he walks among us. But he doesn't stand off in the distance. Okay, certainly he rules and he reigns and he's comfortable on his throne. But he's not averse to walking and moving and breathing among us. John tells us what he's like as he does that. As he moves among us, he's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. This is a picture of a priest. You can read about it in Exodus 29, verse five. It's a picture of what a priest would wear when they would stand between God and humanity, when they would, they, they would be the bridge. And, and Jesus stands in our midst as the perfect bridge between us and God. He's clothed in priestly garments. Verse 14. The hair on his head was like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. When he looks at us, he looks into the deepest places of our soul. He sees all the good. He sees all the things that we're struggling with. The blazing eyes are this this picture of refining. So we don't do ourselves any good when we try to, to hide because it's actually letting him see us as he walks among us that does the work that needs to be done the transformation that's available in him. It says his feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. This is a reference to Daniel chapter two, where Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And the feet of the person in the dream have, have feet that are, that are clay mixed with iron. And, and when they get hit, the whole structure falls over because the foundation is weak. And what, what it's saying about Jesus here is that his foundation is unsinkable. He's the one who was, who is, and who is to come. He holds the keys of death and Hades. He's not going anywhere. He's worthy of your trust. His foundation is secure. It goes on to say, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Like water coming over a waterfall or or rushing through a raging river. You know how you can say something, and you say something in such a way that, that it elicits a little bit more meaning behind it. Like, show of hands, how many of you are teachers, current teachers, former teachers? Okay. You know what I'm talking about. There, there's such a thing known as the teacher's voice, right? Where you can say, "Hey, stack those chairs," and it's like, "Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir." Before you even know, all the stairs are stacked, or, or all the chairs are stacked. It, it's this voice of authority. And so what it's saying here is that, is that Jesus' voice carries authority. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, the seven known fixed planets in the universe. Well, what John is saying and what Jesus is communicating about himself is that I reign above the cosmos. This is all mine. As Abraham Kuyper, the great theologian, said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. When he says something, it holds up, it's true. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. His face is shining brightly, as if to say he's full of joy. This, this is the Jesus who walks among us. And so I started to think, all right, I don't want you just to go, man, that's awesome. What I want you to say is, man, that raises my anticipation. That this Jesus is in our midst. So let me give you a few practices that you can use throughout this week. Here are some real practical ways that you can say, all right, I want to interact with Jesus. Because that's what he's inviting us to. He walks among us for personal interaction. So how do we do that? Here are a few ways. What if this week you went on a walk and you were aware and you were intentional of the things around you and you just had a conversation with Jesus about them? Wow, Jesus, that's a beautiful bird. Wow, Jesus, the colors of fall are so spectacular. Or maybe you, you walk past somebody this week and you go, Lord, I don't know what's going on in their life, but I just want to lift them up in prayer to you. Or or maybe you pick a day this week and you get in the car and and you just decide to have the radio off. No music. I know for me, as soon as I jump in the car, I start listening to a podcast. What about as you interact with people? Maybe it's over lunch. Maybe it's with your kids. As you interact with people, you, you train yourself to pray for them while you're talking with them. You say, God, God is, is there anything that you want me to say to this person? Maybe you start paying special attention to your circumstances. Maybe you're in a situation this week where you're having to wait for something that you scheduled to happen, but it didn't happen. But there might be something that the Spirit of God wants to say to you in that moment. So you could be frustrated and angry, or you could be attentive. But you can't be both. You can be angry or attentive, but, but you can't be both. Maybe this week you pay attention to some of the random thoughts that that enter your mind. And you say, God, is there something you're trying to say to me? What's that thought all about? Is there somebody that I need to forgive? Do do I need to let go of that? Is there something that, that you're moving me beyond? Is it time to make that phone call, send that text message, have that conversation? Or maybe as we come together in this space as the church, to worship together. You just say, Lord, help me be more attentive to what you're saying to me during these times of worship. God, increase my awareness. And so as we sing, Oh, come to the altar, maybe, maybe the thought in the back of, of your head is, man, it's, it's been a long time since you've come to the wide open arms of Jesus. And instead of heaping condemnation and heaping guilt upon yourself, you just go, maybe that's an invitation to come. Here's the conviction. Jesus is in our midst. The invitation is to become a detective, to figure out where and how, and to hear his voice. Because that's the great invitation. Here's how John closes the section in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. What starts out as fear turns into worship. It's this transition that Jesus takes John on that I believe that he wants to take us on too. Because worship is the foundation. As Jesus grows, as Jesus is upsized, fear is downsized and life is supersized. Worship is the foundation of fearless living. Worship is the foundation of fearless living.